Amen. Well, thank you, Doug. Good morning, City Light. I, all right, good morning, guys. That's, that's okay. I'll, I'll say it. You can say it back later, all right? Um, I'm excited to jump into Matthew with you all again today. I thought I'd start today with a memory. It was like a moment that I knew. You ever have those moments where you just know when it's happening? It's kind of significant. It's one of those times that you want to remember. You want to pay attention and not miss it. Well, this particular one, um, I was young. I was in sixth grade, and my principal came uh, to my classroom as the very beginning of the year, school year, and he said uh, that he wanted to encourage us to make the most of our last year of elementary school, which, you know, how do you do that? He was going to tell us. He's a good principal. Uh, And so he started off by saying, not many of you will remember this, but for those who do, it'll make a big impact. And I remember my my ears kind of perked up. I thought, if not many people are going to remember this, I want to pay attention here. I want to get it. And so he went on and he said, the harder you work now, the easier your work will be later. The harder you work now, the easier your work will be later. In essence, what he was saying was, hey, learn your multiplication tables and history timelines and English grammar now in sixth grade, and that will make algebra and Western Civ and paper writing so much easier when you get to high school and college. Put in the effort this year, and it will pay off for years to come. He's saying, my present is connected to my future. I should live today with tomorrow in mind. And I remember in that moment thinking, Man, if not many people will remember this, I want to be one of them. This is a moment that matters. He's saying something important, so I want to get it. I want to remember it. And friends, I think Matthew gives us that kind of an opportunity this morning. Jesus' words kind of draw us in to that kind of moment. And I just want to warn you from the the outset It gets intense, okay? Jesus is only days from the cross, and he ain't scared to shoot straight with anybody, okay? So I'm I'm telling you now, buckle up, because we're going to see what Jesus has to say about how our present days impact our eternal future, okay? So let's uh, catch up to where we are in Scripture, in Jesus' life. Uh, Just days before this conversation, Jesus had rolled into Jerusalem to cheering crowds that were praising him as God's promised king come to them. But then he walked into the temple and things were different there, like totally different. The religious leaders in the temple were not excited at all that Jesus was there, which is odd, right? You would think of all people, they would be the ones that were most excited that Jesus had come. I mean, after all, they had spent their lives studying God's word and learning his law and doing their best to follow it. They had a genuine desire that other people would join them in following God's law. You would have thought that they would be thrilled that Jesus had come. But when Jesus rolled into town, his grace towards sinners kind of method It just didn't jive with their style. And so uh, they rejected Jesus. And in their minds, they thought rejecting him was the right and good thing to do. Now, they they were genuine. This reminds me of when, uh, well, it was a couple years ago, I asked my kids, we had a dandelion problem in my lawn. And so I asked the kids, hey, would you come out with me and help me pick these weeds? And so they walked out, and you know the first place they went? 
They went to all those stalks that grow up and they have that globe of seeds on the top and they just blew all those little white tufts into the air and they spread out across my lawn. They thought they were helping me with the weed problem. They were sincerely trying to help, but in reality, they were just reseeding dandelions all across the lawn, right? It was a sincere effort in the wrong direction. That's the scribes and Pharisees. They think they're following God, but in reality, they're rejecting his son. So in this chapter, Jesus speaks seven woes to these guys. He's telling them they've missed the mark. They're concerned with the wrong things. Sure, they've followed lots of rules. They pray loud, long prayers. They wear fancy clothes with long fringes. But none of that impressed God as much as it impressed each other. Right? They loved to be the center of attention, to get the best seats at the church potluck, to have the highest titles behind their name. They'd become engrossed in a battle, a competition of false humility. It, it brings to mind a line penned by one of the greatest lyricists of my generation. His name is Weird Al. You may know his work. He sang a song called Amish Paradise, and in it he raps, think you're really righteous, think you're pure in heart. Well, I know I'm a million times as humble as thou art, right? He's saying, man, they're in a competition to see who is the most humble. If you're ever arguing that you're more humble or humbler than the next guy, you know you got a humility problem. All right, Weird Al knew it, Jesus knew it. And so he exposed these religious leaders' hypocrisy, saying, the scribes and Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Jesus is telling the crowds, these guys, they know God's law. They've studied the scriptures that God gave Moses. So when they talk about those things, listen up, listen in, that's good stuff, but they're not following any of it. So don't follow them. In other words, they don't practice what they preach. Jesus is just telling us that the religious leaders did not know how to practice what they preached, but Jesus did. Hear his words. He said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And friends, that's it. That's the line that I think not many people will hear and remember. Like, actually soak in that and let it shape their lives. This is Jesus revealing to us the order of things in his kingdom. He's connecting our present to our future. He uses the verb will be. There's a future feel to that, right? He's saying that there's something that's going to happen someday, but it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen in the future. Jesus is showing us how our lives today connect to a future day. And I would suggest to you today that what Jesus is saying is that our present days are connected to the future day when we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. On that day, two things will happen. On one hand, 
the humble, those who honor Jesus as king, who bow their knee to him, they will be exalted when Jesus welcomes them into the heavenly paradise of his kingdom. But on the other hand, the self-exalting, those who will not honor Jesus as king, who will not bow the knee to him, the ones who stand in opposition to him, they will be humbled when they are turned away from heaven and condemned to hell. Jesus is saying these present days are connected to that future day. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Are you tracking with me? I told you this was going to get intense, okay? So buckle in because it just keeps going, all right? The seven woes that follow this warning unpack what Jesus means by it. And so as we look at the list, I would just invite you, prepare your heart to do some self-reflection. As Jesus reveals the blind spots of the religious leaders in his day, let's just reflect and see if he doesn't reveal some blind spots in our own hearts in our day. Okay, here's how we're going to do it. Um, We're going to look at the seven woes that Jesus lists in three groups. Okay, Jesus says, woe to the self-exalting door shutters, grave painters, and self-deceivers. Door shutters, grave painters, self-deceivers, seven woes, three groups. That's where we're going. Let's jump in. Jesus' first two woes are directed at door shutters. Let me read to you his words from the Bible. Jesus said, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. That's a convert. They would go over land and see a mission trip to anywhere for one convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. I told you this was going to get intense, right? Here's what Jesus is saying. This is a powerful word picture. Imagine heaven has a door. It might look like a gate with gold bars that glisten as they open to paradise on the other side. And you know what that paradise looks like. It's got streets of gold, crystal seas, and God enthroned in all his glory. And you walk up to the gate of the door of heaven with some guides who had brought you there. Somehow God had given them directions like a map to this door. And they had encouraged you. They had taught you. They had led you there. They had whet your appetite for what lie on the other side. And so as soon as you see that door and you lift your foot to step across the threshold, Those guides grab the door of heaven and slam it in your face. And if that's not bad enough, they pull a rope and open a trap door to hell under your feet. Those are the door shutters. It's the ultimate bait and switch. It's an intense picture. But friends, Jesus says this is exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. 
So he was saying that God had given them a map of sorts, a guide to heaven. He had given them his word, and in his word there were books of the law that showed them God's holiness and his plan for right living, the way that we could live in right relationship with God. They had that in God's law. And they had the books of the prophets, books that showed a long history of their people, God's people, just unable to overcome the sin in their hearts. They were unable to attain to the holiness that God had planned for them. And so God's word had revealed to them that their sin could not stand in God's holiness. Their sin separated them from God, and it was bad news. But they also saw that sprinkled throughout all of God's word, there were promises. God had given promises that one day he would send a savior, a new kind of king who could bridge the gap between their sin and God's holiness. He could make right what they had made wrong. He would break the stranglehold of sin on God's people and welcome them into God's presence again. See, the scribes and Pharisees, they knew all of that. They taught all of that. That knowledge made them serious about their sin and set them up to watch for God's promised king who would welcome them into his kingdom. In that way, they were genuine guides who led people right up to the door of heaven. But when God's king did come, when Jesus, the Savior, showed up on the scene, they rejected him outright and encouraged their followers to do the same thing. And that rejecting Jesus ultimately was sincere effort in the wrong direction. They led people away from Jesus, and in doing so, they led people away from God's promised Savior. That's shutting the door to heaven and opening the door to hell. Woe to the door shutters. And so it's worth reflecting. Do you use what you know about God's word to point people to Jesus or away from him. I got to uh, read um, some results of a a LifeWay research paper. It's their 2020 State of Theology report. They do it every other year, and they just survey churchgoers like us to kind of see the water level of belief in the church today, America's church today. The results are telling. Let me read to you just a few of them. 30%, that's nearly one in three, believe Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. The Bible says Jesus was God. Nearly half, 46%, believe everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. We'll talk about that in a minute. And again, almost half, 42%, believe God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, In Islam, almost half believe there are all kinds of ways to enter God's kingdom. Beliefs like these are becoming ever more prevalent. And the problem with that is that they minimize the gravity of sin and our need for a savior. You know what I'm saying? They just minimize all of that. And that that is not far from where the scribes and Pharisees had gotten In other words, they believed that following their rules made them generally good people. 
And if they could be generally good people on their own, why would they need a Savior? They just were no longer interested in looking for a Savior who would graciously forgive all their sins. Friends, they were sincerely trying to follow God, but their sincere effort was in the wrong direction. Let's never put our sincere effort in the wrong direction. Let's remember what the Bible says about sin and salvation. Lest we forget, can, can we just remember together this morning? Can we walk through it real quick? Here's from Romans what God says about sin and salvation. Romans 3.23 tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. How many of us? Every one of us. It means there is not one of us who does not struggle with a sin-sick soul. All have sinned. And Romans 6.23 tells us why that matters, why it's such a big deal, why it's important that we don't forget it. All have sinned. Why does that matter? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Here's what it's saying. The Bible says, it calls God the author of life. And it, calls, it says that sin is rejecting God or turning from God. So if God is the author and sustainer, the giver of your very life and breath, and you reject him and turn from him, the only result is death. Are you tracking with me? The Bible says sin matters because it is a death sentence for the sinner. That's bad news. It's why we can't minimize the gravity of our sin. But the Bible's not just about bad news. It gives us good news. We need to read the whole verse, right? Here's what all of Romans 6.23 says. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, friends, eternal life is God's free gift to everyone who believes in Jesus. That's why we need a Savior. That's the power of Jesus Christ over sin. He takes sinners destined for death and gives them new life. That's why it matters what we believe. That's why we can never put sincere effort in the wrong direction. There is not another way. There is nobody who does not need Jesus. And so, let's reflect for a moment. Do you believe that? And if you do, does that belief shape your life? In other words, does your life lead people toward Jesus? Do the people around you look at your life and see God's amazing grace on display? Does your influence in the people around you widen their eyes and their hearts to the wonder that God would save any of us? Does your life whet the appetite of the world around you for Jesus? Friends, door shutters know the words, but they put sincere effort in the wrong direction. The door to heaven is only open to those who follow Jesus. We slam it in the faces of the people in our lives if we point to anything or anyone else. You with me? I told you this is intense, okay? Like, there's woes. This is real. It's heavy, but it matters because eternity is at stake. 
So we've gone through two woes to one group. The door shutters. We're going to keep going. The next four woes go to a group I want to call the grave painters. They're hypocrites. They're uh, different on the outside than they are on the inside. Clean on the outside, filthy on the inside. Devout law followers on the outside, lawless on the inside. Righteous on the outside, rotting on the inside. I could keep going, but you get the idea. You're tracking with me. So here's what I'm going to do. We'll summarize woes three through five, and then I'm going to read woe number six, just Jesus' words straight from the Bible, okay? Number three, woe to the blind guides who think the temple's gold coating is more significant than the temple itself. Number four, woe to the hypocrites who tithe on their smallest garden crops but ignore the big weighty matters of the law like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Number six, uh, number five, sorry. Woe to the hypocrites who clean the outside of the dish but are happy to leave the inside filthy. And number six, these are Jesus' words. Verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This picture of whitewashed tombs, it would have meant something to Jesus' original hearers. See, in Jesus' day, it was Jewish custom to paint the roadside graves on the roads leading to Jerusalem in the days leading up to the Passover holiday feast. And they painted them so that travelers to Jerusalem who are preparing to celebrate the Passover would not inadvertently or accidentally lean against or sit on a stone that was actually a grave. They would paint the tombs, whitewash them, so that it would be a sign, a clear sign to travelers, this stone is a tomb. There is rot and decay inside, only death. So don't approach this rock, don't touch this rock, definitely don't enter or you will be unclean. Outwardly, they were beautiful decorations on the way to God's city, but inside they were full of decaying corpses. That's the picture Jesus uses to describe the scribes and Pharisees. Beautiful on the outside, dead on the inside. I want to take a moment here and just confess to all of you, I am a grave painter. I'm not proud of it. It's not something that I intend or want to be, but if I'm honest... I really love to look good on the outside, even if there's rot, decay, death on the inside. Anybody know what that's like? For me, this became clear um, several years ago. Uh, I was taking a statin drug for bad cholesterol. I was a young man, but my dad had a heart attack at 40 years old, and so I was on a statin drug already, and one of the side effects was it was hurting my joints. And that pain was getting worse and worse, where it was waking me up at night. 
And so I went to the doctor to discuss my options. And as we were talking, um, I had heard that red wine helps some people's cholesterol. And so I pitched this to my doctor and he said, yeah, you know, for some people it works better than others, but at your age and your numbers, um, we could give that a try and see how it works. And so on the way home, I picked up a bottle of sweet red wine and that night I poured myself a glass. I was 27 years old and had never had a drink of alcohol. And something interesting happened as I picked up that glass of wine, looked at it, I just started to feel guilty. And sip by sip, as I swallowed that down, that feeling of guilt grew and grew. In that moment, I realized that I thought not drinking made me clean on the outside. Not drinking had become a source of pride and self-righteousness in my heart. And so with each sip, I felt like I was drinking just dirtiness, condemnation, death on my life. I realized I was judging myself by the same measure that I had used to judge others around me. And it was hurtful, painful, bad. Not drinking made me feel clean on the outside, but on the inside, it made me think that I was better than everybody else. I'd made up my own rules about what the good Christian life looked like, and essentially I had painted my own grave. Now listen, I want to be clear here. There are lots of good reasons to choose not to drink. I'm not encouraging everybody to go drink today, okay? There's lots of good reasons not to. Maybe you're not of legal age. Maybe there's a history of abusing alcohol in your life. Maybe your friends struggle with that temptation more than you do, and you just don't want to put them in that situation. There are all kinds of good reasons that give glory to God when you choose not to drink. I'm just saying I didn't pick one of those reasons. I did not choose to not drink to glorify God, I did it to glorify Eric. I painted my grave to look good on the outside and it fostered a heart of self-righteousness and judgment on the inside. I am, but by the grace of God, a grave painter. That's what the scribes and Pharisees did. They were concerned about swearing by the right things, tithing on even the littlest plants that they harvested, and they did all of that to look good on the outside, but Jesus said on the inside, they were full of greed and self-indulgence and lawlessness and hypocrisy. Pastor David Platt says, that kind of religion is a subtly dangerous cover-up for spiritual deadness. In other words, trying to clean up your life on the outside without inviting Jesus to clean you up on the inside makes you simply a whitewashed tomb. So, let's reflect for a minute. Maybe ask yourself questions like these. Have I bowed the knee to King Jesus in such a way that I celebrate him cleaning me up on the inside? Is there life and transformation inside me? Is there love and affection for Jesus at the root of my obedience? Do I take sin on the inside as seriously as I take sin on the outside? Grave painters clean up the outside while they die inside. And friends, I want to tell you this morning, that is not what Jesus wants for you. When you give your life to Jesus, he enters in, cleans you up, and gives you life from the inside out. Amen? He says, woe to grave painters who don't understand that. All right, 
We made it through two, all right? We're getting there. We got one more. It's just as intense as the others, all right? Uh, we've gone six woes to the door shutters and grave painters. The last woe goes to the last group. I call them the self-deceivers. Let me read to you Jesus' words one more time. Here they are. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? (laughs) Here's what's going on, all right? Last woe. The scribes and Pharisees, they decorated the graves of the prophets. It's probably not that much different than what we do on Memorial Day when we lay out flowers on the graves of those that we love. They would do that to recognize that those men buried in those graves were indeed prophets of God. They're saying, our fathers may not have recognized that when they killed them, but we recognize it now, so we're going to decorate their graves and make them look good. In essence, what they're doing is they're contrasting themselves, they're comparing themselves to their forefathers and saying, we're not as bad as those guys, right? And Jesus is just revealing the true state of their hearts. He's saying, you are admitting by saying what you said that you stand in a long line of prophet killers and the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. Their self-exalting comparisons, we're not as bad as those guys, we're really just self-deceived. They're saying, man, if if we'd lived in those days, we never would have killed them, right? Because look at all the good stuff we do. Look how we decorated their monuments and their graves. Look how pretty they are. People are going to walk by and honor these prophets now. We're pointing people to them. Look how good we are and the good things that we've done. We're certainly not as bad as them. And Jesus is saying, that kind of comparison game is dangerous. Because you may say, I'm not as bad as that guy, but it makes you no less a sinner. He says to the religious leaders that they are sinners by nature. It has been passed down to them from their fathers, and they are sinners by choice. Their plot to kill Jesus that they would execute just days after this conversation would prove it. They're sinners by nature and by choice. Comparison is a dangerous game because it makes you feel okay about the sin in your life since it's not as bad as that guy. So let's do some self-reflection. Do we ever play the comparison game? You know what this is like. You might think something like, hey, looking at porn isn't that bad. At least it's not as bad as adultery, right? It's just window shopping. I look, but don't touch. I'm not that bad. At least I'm not as bad as those guys who do that stuff. Comparison like that is deceptive. Because Jesus never said, look, don't touch. He never said that was the standard that he set. He never said that's the kind of holiness God wants for your life. What did Jesus say? He said, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus' standard is different. And so comparing yourself is a dangerous game. That example and countless others like it show us that Jesus does not let us play the comparison game to excuse or explain away our sin. We can't do it. 
Self-deception is dangerous. Jesus said it would end with the Pharisees being sentenced to hell. Woe to the self-deceivers. Seven woes to three groups. Jesus is days away from the cross and he is not pulling punches. He gets serious with the people he's talking to and somebody out there has got to be thinking, man, is there any good news in Matthew 23? Is it all this heavy? Does Jesus have any hope for us? If that's you, I'm with you and I think he does. And so I want to close our time the way that Jesus closed this time. Let me read to you one last verse. This is Jesus' words. He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. You know what Jesus is saying? He's looking out over the city of Jerusalem at people who've killed the prophets, their door shutters, grave painters, self-deceivers, and though they have rejected him, he does not reject them. Do you see the grace there? He longed for them to be close to him. And friends, I want to tell you, he still longs for that today. Remember how he started. He said, the, "Those uh, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. That's the seven woes part. That's the bad news part. But he didn't end there. He said, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's the good news part. That's the mother hen-like part. Like a mother hen that longs for her little ones to be close to her so that she can spread her wings over them to protect them and lead them into safe places. Jesus longs to have his people close to him. Sinners like you and me so that he can spread out his wings over us and protect us from the effects of sin in our lives and in our eternity. He longs to have us close and protect us so that he can lead us into heaven, into his kingdom, into paradise for forever. Friends, that is good news. It means the intensity with which Jesus pronounced these seven woes matches the intensity of Jesus' love for sinners. It means the passion that we see in these last days of Jesus is the same kind of passion Jesus has for us for all time. Friends, this is a moment I don't want anybody to forget. Do not miss it. Jesus is speaking to you today. If you are willing to follow him, he is willing to forgive your sin. And that means he invites you into heaven now and forever. And so friends, follow him through the open door. Oh, oh. Don't clean up the outside and minimize the sin inside. Confess it and let Jesus make you clean from the inside out. Oh, friends, Jesus will save you from sin and all of its effects. He is God's promised Savior and King now and forever. Our present days are connected to days in eternity. We live today with tomorrow in mind, so here it is. Humble yourselves today. Bow the knee to Jesus and he will exalt you forever. There is no good news like that, amen? amen. Let's pray and thank Jesus together. Awesome God, thank you 
for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that you were willing to have hard conversations like this. You got intense about sin because you knew the intensity of its consequences. You're passionate for people because your love is that passionate for them. Jesus, I need to remember this. I just have to confess. And I mean, can I just invite you to confess? Your head bowed and your eyes closed. If you have been convicted by Jesus' words, if his words have exposed blind spots in your heart, man, would you today confess too? I am a door shutter, a grave painter, a self-deceiver by nature. Jesus, I am sick with sin. And I need you to save me. I, I can see and feel just the death and decay of sin in my heart. And I'm so prone to clean up the outside without ever addressing the inside. Jesus, would you forgive me for all the ways that I turn from you? I look for um, righteousness, for cleanness, for honor in so many other places. Jesus, would you forgive me? And if you can pray a prayer like that, whether you've believed in Jesus forever and you just, it, for your whole life, and you just got into the place where, man, I've become comfortable with my sin. I feel like I've gotten to a good place. And so you kind of just walk on autopilot, distant from Jesus in your life. If that's you, run to him. He longs to have you close. Confess that sin and he will take it away from you, forgive you, separate it as far as the east is from the west. Man, if you don't know Jesus, but you can feel exactly what he's talking about, the intensity of what Jesus is talking about, if you just feel that wrestle in your soul, it's because Jesus knows what you're going through. And he did not look out at sinners in this city in his times, nor does he look out at sinners like us in Council Bluffs in these times and reject us. He invites us in. And so if you feel that wrestle of sin in your soul and you long for people to see you clean on the outside, but you just know there's stuff to clean up on the inside, today you can bow the knee to Jesus as king. Friend, if that's you, confess your sin. Honor Jesus as king. Invite him to be your king and you get to step into paradise forever. Jesus will do it. God promised that he would send a savior. That savior is Jesus. There is none like him. And so Jesus, we thank you for loving us, for speaking the truth, even when it's hard, for going to the cross to die in our place and make a way for us to be right with God again. There is no savior like that. There is no king like you. We love you. We give you all the praise today and all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.